welcome to the ABC Music Talk podcast, the show for anyone interested in the music industry. This week, my guest will walk us through his fascinating growth as an executive in the music business. It's a story covering a variety of twists and turns, including one of the most recognizable names in the global industry, the enemy. Stay tuned to hear more. But now, it's that time again for me to remind you to go rotate your videos. Rotor is for artists, managers, labels, or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rotor makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rotor logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. And a special note today, they've just launched a new subscription layer, which makes these videos super cheap. So head to the website and click the pricing link to find out more. So, welcome to the show, Romano Sidoli. Hello, good morning. Thank you for coming to the Halley in Shoreditch, and thank you very much to the guys for once again letting me use the studio. I hope my listeners appreciate the beautiful dead room uh, effect that we have here. Um, we're also recording this on some equipment that they've lent me, so I hope it doesn't sound rubbish. With, the, with those caveats out of the way, we will crack on. All right, so um, I, I know you're an avid listener to the show. Yes. Um, we've just been discussing the fact you've listened to at least two of them. Crammed them uh, in this just, morning. We'll cram them in, exactly. That's, that's like homework, isn't it, before exactly. the meeting? We're going to go through your career today. So normally I would ask people to give me their backstory and where they got to because we're normally talking about a particular subject matter. But this is uh, focusing on uh, a path that I think the listeners to this show are either on themselves or may end up on themselves at a later point in life. I certainly felt an affiliation to it. I'm currently going through a very similar process as we've as we've discussed. And yeah. in fact, you know, that's been a lot of uh, our sort of discussions as we've got to know each other. What I love about the fact that uh, Romano and I didn't know each other up until quite recently although we did discover we did <laughs> we did meet each other briefly at some point in the yeah, past we obviously didn't quite have the right impression on each other because we've completely forgotten about that we've and then remembered it totally this morning, forgotten so. about it yeah. yeah well actually well a mutual friend you know or contact in the industry uh, reminded us and uh, i mean that's typically how it goes it's a wonderful sort of business to have that big network uh, to indeed to, to, very to important part it really is it really is okay so so I was, i've mentioned the enemy already that your last position there was that i believe it's the official title of big boss man well i'm not sure i mean there was there were a lot of people that could probably claim that but yeah i, I guess uh, i was the managing director of enemy from 2015 uh, from the time of a big transition in the way that that business model worked through to kind of middle of 2018 yes I, and i i particularly wanted to do this interview with you because one you're awesome but two that to me felt like a such an important part of that company history it is it's uh it's certainly a chapter um depending on who you speak to there'll be there'll be divided <laughs> opinion but i guess uh in the kind of true spirit of the enemy's history um all of those kind of significant periods divided opinion in some way or another so happy to have played my part in one of them yeah brilliant but but before we get into to that sort of that that element of it i mean the other thing about it is that i think a lot of people uh, in the music industry at least recently probably aren't thinking about staying with a company for a, a very very long time i mean you were there for well time inc you were yeah. there for 30, almost 20 years oh was it was nearly 20 yeah, years. yeah so okay. i started there at 19 um as a classified sales exec so my first job there was a kind of telesales role working on nme um, but also in that group of brands at the time was loaded um, music magazine, a dance music mag, and later, which was kind of a slightly older sibling version of Loaded, a kind of uh, a lads mad mag for a slightly maturer generation, let's say. But um, many of those, or certainly the other three, don't <laughs> exist now. Yeah. And Enemy's the only one that um, you know anyone on this uh, listening to this will probably still be familiar with, as far as the music industry is concerned. But yeah, so I went from there um, and stayed there from the age of nineteen right up until thirty-eight. Right, uh, almost so, to the day. So that was straight out of college? Pretty much, um, yeah. So I studied at Sixth Form College. Um, I didn't go to university, um, which I guess at the time felt like quite a felt like quite a peculiar decision, decision actually, because I guess most of my mates at that point in my life were probably doing that. I think I'd always... I'd worked from quite a young age. I'd done lots of different kind of uh, jobs to earn a bit of pocket money, including working for my dad in his shop and things like that. So I was... 
I guess I was quite ready to go and work and I was always very aware that I wanted to earn money and start kind of my own journey in um, independence and um, and yeah, so pretty much straight out of college. I'd probably had a couple of jobs before that, in fact, quite a few, but not what you'd refer to as a career, certainly yeah, nothing sure. that would be uh, of interest to the music industry, butter right. and bread and uh, <laughs> turnstile attendant at Charlton Athletic and the sort of... Uh, retail at Next and things like that. Yeah, Nothing okay. that was particularly no. formative, but all stuff that you know paid well when you were kind of sixteen to, to eighteen. You know what? Th those jobs, but they also they, they they do teach you certain things. Yeah. Like especially like I mean I you know I, the only other job I've ever had was working in a shop selling clothes, but I learned a lot about sales during that. Period Definitely, of time. very true, very uh, true. I think um, retail experiences were always a big factor actually in in later years when I was working at Time Inc in a kind of couple of roles previous to the enemy one where I was running sales divisions and teams and um, you do tend to find once you work with lots of people over a number of years the the kind of similarities in the background and the way in which those experiences have certainly shaped their abilities to do things like sales certainly um, you know Anyone that had always worked at, it's a bit, bit of a cliche, but M&S was always a really good employer. People who'd come from there tended to have a really good understanding of customer service and, and sales process and things like that. So it's 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 definitely an important part, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And so was it just a job ad you saw and you applied and, and got the gig? or? Had, yeah, had very luckily. Um, I'd, I'd wanted to work in, in media, in inverted commas, and uh, had studied that at A-level. Oh, right. Okay. Media right, studies. So there was, a, there was a vague plan. Yeah, there was a bit of a plan. Right, um, good. <laughs> I can have... <laughs> I happily admit now, with the benefit of hindsight, that um, you know my years as a student probably um, were informative in terms of picking out careers that I would have been interested in doing. Um, I might not have left with the grades that would guarantee you entry into it straight away, but it certainly gave me enough of an idea around things like advertising, marketing, um, because all of that was kind of baked into that media studies A-level course at the time. So yeah, I'd, I'd been applying for jobs my God, it seems so long ago now. I've been applying for jobs in what used to be um, like the Monday supplement of The Guardian, I think, which was the media day, and that was where there was all these different jobs. Went along to a bunch of interviews, didn't really know what media sales was as a career at that point in my life, but ended up in an interview um, at what was King's Reach Tower on the South Bank. Um, and, you know, a 19-year-old guy being interviewed for a job to sell advertising in Loaded magazine um, yeah. at the time was, was a pretty yeah. kind of great start for me. And, you know, certainly meant I was coolest amongst my peer group of mates back in South East London who thought that was the best job in the world. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it was, it was a good start. Oh, wicked. Okay. And you sort of stayed with the, the sort of the media side of the business rather than the, the music side of it for, yeah. for a little while? Yeah, for quite a while. Um, Enemy as a brand had kind of re repetitively come back into my career at about three or four points through the first 10, 15 years um, as I was working my way up through the different roles in the kind of sales commercial side of the business. Um, in the end, I worked across pretty much everything that, that Time Inc or IPC Media it was for a time published, which meant that I'd worked on brands as as uh, as disparate as Horse and Hound, Marie Claire, Loaded, NME, Shooting Times, Cycling Weekly. So it was a, it was a big publisher, and I guess um, with its heritage very much in print publishing, um, so whether that was weekly or monthly magazines, the evolution of that business into digital um, was a huge huge factor in in certainly in the way it is now and in my career in those kind of in that sort of second half. So working across all of those brands gives you a really good understanding of audiences, gives you a really good understanding of the ways in which different businesses behave and, and, and how their marketing needs change. So what at the very beginning was probably pretty simple, straightforward, selling advertising in a magazine, which was either a, a kind of full page ad or a, a sort of variant thereof. And your only real decision was, do they put that ad in full colour or not? Um, <laughs> to the kind of world that we exist in now, where partnerships and media has become so... Uh, kind of varied that you you have to have a much broader understanding obviously and you're much more consultative and you have to understand businesses to a far greater degree to to really work out what are the right solutions for them so actually you know working across all those different brands and different audiences was definitely a big part in i guess helping me understand the right ways to approach clients and uh and customers through that period so it was it was it was really really fascinating but obviously the significant changes everything moved to digital well, i was gonna um, say what, what sort of year was it when when digital advertising was something oh that would have come um, that kind of so i remember being brought into a meeting very early on i'd probably been at the ipc for 
maybe a, a, a two years at the time. Um, and there was this kind of big furore around enemy.com. Um, it had become one of sort of IPC media's early successes in terms of transferring um, a print brand onto a digital platform. And at that point, it was just a website. It was a sort of desktop website. So the world that we know now, even back then, actually sounds quite old fashioned. But at the time, that felt like a really big change. So enemy because of the nature of its audience and the fact that it, it you know, averaged much younger than so many other brands that Time Inc. or IPC Media published at the time, was a bit of a trailblazer and very quickly grew a very big audience digitally. And much like everybody else, the challenge then was how do you successfully monetize that model knowing that the content is generally available free of charge to its audience? And unlike the magazine, which traditionally people would have paid for, certainly up to a, a point with enemy actually when, um, when did that so the the well when the magazine went free in 2015 uh, in right. september 2015 that's a, that's a good time to take over mate <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well i guess the first six months of my time um there was kind of a bit of a hybrid role so i was the commercial director of the specialist department which um as i explained has a bunch of very different brands in it um the common denominator being that the audiences were all specialists so they weren't kind of big mainstream magazines your kind of tv listings guides or, or kind of big monthly brands they were they were very much brands where the audience um was right at the center of everything you did because it was you know passionate regular readers of those brands and enemy moved into that department and it did so at the time, frankly, because it was selling a tiny amount of copies on a weekly basis. The audience had grown to probably, you know, late 30s, which was generally driven by sort of subscription agreements that you'd have with your readers who had grown older with the brand. Um, and there was a real challenge on every week to put that magazine out because whilst it still had its iconic heritage, uh, on a week-to-week -week basis, it was losing new readers because younger people were increasingly getting their content digitally. The website was um, was in great health. It was probably at that time doing, uh, I'd be estimating, but sort of six to seven million um, page impressions at the time, which was really strong, certainly within the portfolio that Time Inc. had. Um, and, you know, the, the, the magazine had no real commercial value within the wider business. So the, the kind of project that we undertook, and, and I guess which ended in... Um, you know, my role changing to work specifically on that brand rather than across the portfolio was how do you re-energize that? How do you create a new business model for it? And then try and appropriately monetize that to make sure that you can, you know, create new opportunities as you move forward. You want to talk a bit more about what you did? Uh, well, yeah, I guess the, uh, I've tried to prepare the short version of this story because it's, a, well, we it's quite a significant catalogue of, uh, of events. But <laughs> was, it, was it a lot of trial and error? There was a bit of trial and error. I mean... The reality is that it it, it changed quite a bit. The, the project began, and it was a very simple idea of you know there were there were examples of successful brands that had either moved from a paid for model to free in terms of print publishing, and then there was a couple of others that had been born into that world, so had never been a, a paid for brand, but had, had kind of launched and existed only ever in a in a freemium environment, as the category was often coined, um, and. You know, we knew with NME that the significant challenge was going to be to re-engage a young audience. The, the first sort of start point for all of those decisions was for 65 years, NME had been a brand uh, and a music magazine um, which was for young people. It was about music discovery and it was about making sure that you could tune people into the music that would change their lives and that would, you know, be really, really important in those sort of early years. And we wanted to therefore get back to that audience. So we, we embarked on a project to look at where we could and how we should distribute that magazine um, to re-engage that audience. We did a survey of the, um, of the NUS about six months before we you know, kindly finally made the decision and, and the business model had all been agreed. And I think NME had no recognition amongst about 60 or 70% of that student audience which was quite an arresting moment for us yeah. because, you know, you realise that not just they, they haven't ever, you know, bought a copy, they didn't even know what the initials stood for. They didn't know what that brand was. Um, and this was 2015? Yeah, this would have been, yeah, 2014-15 when yeah. we were kind of researching the project. But it was a great start point because it meant it gave us a very clear focus and a very clear objective about what that challenge would be to re-engage that audience 
to make a, a magazine and, a, and then to create a business model that would be relevant for that audience and that would talk to their interests at that point in time, which I guess I'm keen to stress because, um, you know, much like uh, everything that people can be very passionate about, and I put the enemy in that category, um, you're going to upset you know, people who had grown up with it for the 10, 15 years before that and felt like it was a, a terrible thing to do. But actually, that's the best vote of confidence you can get, um, I think. If you're going to um, piss off the people who had been reading it, writing it, and creating it for the 20 years previously, uh, and actually some of the musicians who had adorned the pages of it and the front cover of it particularly, um, that's a good thing, I think, because it means that you're, you know, you're trying to do something that's a challenge, but you're trying to do it for the audience of its day rather than for the audience that I guess had, had grown up with it for years before. So yeah, so that was the kind of beginning and then fast forward to 2015, it launched as a free magazine. Um, the business plan was always to try and therefore use that as a as an opportunity to develop the digital audience and to also create an events-based business which put the audience at the forefront of everything it did. So it didn't really matter whether you were a musician or a commercial client um, and which part of the business model was of most interest to you. It was about us being able to use all of those access points to our audience to talk about new music, to talk about things that we felt the audience would be interested in, um, and then to try and monetize that in some way. So I guess my role predominantly was going to be in driving the revenue generation side and to create the business model that would support the editorial uh, coverage for for that brand across all those platforms. What were some of the things that worked really well, and perhaps also some of the things that didn't work so well? The I mean, it's, it's a good question because in hindsight, you reflect upon those things. I guess I spent, uh, or we all spent within that team, a long time trying to research with focus groups and um, and internal stakeholders. What were the you know where was the where were the, where were the fence posts that we could move with regards to the enemy's audience? Because we were very aware that it had to be significantly bigger. Um, the audience had to be um, scalable enough that we could monetize it with big clients and also that we could continue to be an important part of the marketing mix for the music industry. So whether that was a record label, whether that was a PR, whether that was a um, an artist, they knew that they would be able to get scaled through the enemy. So... You know, some of the things that I think worked really well were that the front cover of the magazine um, became really important again. So when you are talking to, and this would have been more the role of, of uh, you know, one of my colleagues, Mike, who was the editor-in-chief, when you're talking to an artist manager or their team um, and you know that they're going to be on the front cover of 300,000 magazines every week, which are going to be handed out to a, an audience of, you know, 18 to 25, 18 to 30-year-olds again, um, that's a really important part of a, of a campaign for an album launch or a tour or a festival season. Right. So that worked really well. Some of the things that didn't work quite so well, um, I think that the content that we began to write in the magazine, and, and this is probably down to the challenges and the interdependent opinions within the, the, the kind of publishing giant that Enemy sat within, were that it needed to do more things for more people in order to attract advertisers' revenue. So it was suddenly being compared to brands like Time Out and Shortlist, which were other free magazines distributed in a similar way. Not exactly similar because I think they were far more focused at London for a start, whereas we were nationwide, um, which was important because music isn't you know governed by what goes on in London. There's a lot more than that we needed to think <laughs> thankfully about. Thankfully not. Yeah, thankfully not. And um, and I think in doing that, we probably you know we went down some blind alleys. We wasted time on certain things that I don't think were ever where the enemy should have been playing, if I'm honest. So um, whilst music discovery and celebrating the icons um, that, that we wanted to on the front cover was was a kind of, you know, a good step in the right direction, I think we probably ended up in some blind alleys on things that we were writing about at the time because we were pursuing advertisers that were interested in fashion and food and, and sort of advertisers that were regularly popping up in shortlist and time out. And the reality was that wasn't of particularly great interest to an enemy audience. So that was definitely a mistake, which I think in hindsight we'd have, you know, we'd have probably been better looking at what was actually the original model, um, not to distribute 300,000 copies a week, to manage the costs and to distribute that more specifically to about an audience of, you know, somewhere to f between 50 and 70,000 copies a week um, and focus on music venues and, and retailers where we knew that audience were and university campuses, which was obviously where we managed to re-engage this younger audience. Yeah. 
I think you, you had it in HMV and places like that, right? Yeah, so HMV and Topman Top were the two Man, retail partners, right. yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, was squarely aimed at their own research um, around their audiences. So again, audience comes back time and time again in everything we were doing. And certainly when we did things right was when we spent the, the kind of appropriate amount of time considering that audience and, and it's and the, the nature in which it was changing quite rapidly. Um, so Topman and HMV were two retail partners. We also had, if I remember correctly, about 70 independent record stores up and down the country that were distributing it. Um, we also, at one point, were looking at venues, um, but that was difficult because of the frequency of the magazine and the nature of the events that went through some of those venues were quite were quite varied and not necessarily right in all cases for the audience. And then obviously the the part that enabled us to put the scale in or the, the sort of, you know, the weights behind those numbers was through the transport network. So it would have been, you know, your kind of classic, um, you know, big train train stations and, and kind of commuter hubs around London. Um, and again, that's probably the part that, you know, whilst you do achieve good numbers through doing that, I think you could probably make the case that the audience is 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 much more varied you know there's not as much specific focus on music consumers and fans in that audience you're looking at people who are traveling in and out of london you know so yeah. there's obviously as, as anyone who does that often enough will know certainly not at the moment maybe it's a bit different right now but <laughs> certainly in, in recent times you would have you know sit on the train and look around that's just a, a melting pot of of london rather than certainly of a, a particular hobby or interest like music yeah for sure and uh, so outside of the 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 print aspect to it because obviously with the internet the advent of that mm -hmm. you were able to bring in multimedia so video music into the websites and, and i guess maybe any apps that you may have done how did how did that go because obviously there's been there's still there's still a, a real relevance to brands associated with music i'm thinking things like grm daily yep and you know, record labels because it's kind of in my world at the moment you know will will look to those to help them seed either new artists in or big artists new releases did, did the enemy find its feet in, in that sort it of it did and, and um regrettably this is one of the areas where i think with a bit more time um and and patience within that model that would have continued to develop quite nicely and um you know it's it's fair to say and, and actually it should be said that enemy's digital audience was already huge you know when the magazine went free um, we we already had almost an insurance with the fact that we knew on social media channels, certainly the ones that were relevant at the time, Facebook and Twitter would have been the first ones. Instagram came to enemy a bit later, but the audience was already quite big there. Um, and obviously the content output across the website was huge. Where I think the introduction of video and the the kind of new elements of that you know it was more from a commercial basis that was really valuable to us but in taking the magazine free that was always a decision to open up the potential of everything else i think enemy's digital audience grew um again i'm 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 wary to use the you know estimates now because i've forgotten the numbers as, yeah, as much as they were then but i would say you know it, it definitely got to the point where we were doing about 12 or 13 million unique users a month which generated about 25 million page impressions um and the audience within that first year that the magazine went free you know it, i think it, you know it was it was 50 or 60 percent growth and that was really through the university students that were suddenly receiving this magazine free on campus and the you know the obvious behaviour that that that's kind of a, a member of your audience then goes on is that they read the magazine. There's some stuff in it that they resonate with and they find interesting. Um, so they'll go and follow you on your social channels and they'll look at your content right. um, through the day. So we managed to grow the digital audience and launch a lot of events off the back of the magazine going free. So whilst preservation of the the magazine and the new model for it was always a big decision it was really much more about how that would then allow us to go and experiment and do more with the digital channels. And the best example I can give of that is probably something like the Enemy Awards. So the Enemy Awards was, um, you know, our kind of uh, headline event. So within all of the events that we've begun to create and evolve, the Enemy Awards had existed throughout all of this period that I'm sort of referring to. And the difference was that I think in 2014, um, we had one commercial partner that helped to fund that awards, uh, which was Austin, Texas. And it was kind of an early six-figure sponsorship fee. In 2018, just before I left and the last one that I was involved in, the awards generated over a million pounds of sponsorship revenue. So over four years as a, as a commercial entity, 
you know, it, it had grown significantly. It was a huge part of of the enemy's overall business model. But in terms of the audience and what it allowed us to do with the musicians was that we could, you know, we were working with a much broader um, amount of artists. The genre bias had, had gone through the transformation because we knew that younger consumers and the advent of streaming meant that people weren't as tribal in their interest. They would listen to a, a much wider variety of music, which meant we could reflect that in the category, categories and the artists that were nominated and that then would perform on the night at Brixton. Um, and in the last year, when we, we, we broadcast the awards on social media, um, and I think we did it across a combination of social platforms. And if I remember correctly, the audience um, was about 1.4 million people. Now, if you think about that in relation to something like, I think the Brits, and again, you'll have to fact check me here, I think the Brits does about 3.5 million on ITV. Um, and that's obviously a big you know, TV broadcast production um, at prime time on ITV. Um, you know, for, for us to have done that with an awards, or not that number, but to, you know, to be almost within a reach of half of that number was a huge, huge opportunity for how that brand was evolving and how in which we felt we would deliver the um, all of our different coverage, whether it was about reviews or live events or, you know, um, you know artist features into people's uh, devices or at home or however they wanted to consume it um, and the magazine was just one part of that so really that was the that was the main benefit of how all those digital channels began to, to help us reach a much wider audience yeah it's really interesting hearing you talk about all of this and your and your time there you're often referring to this challenge around measurement for the the main revenue source which was advertising yeah and of course you've gone from this kind of analog print into this digital world and you're trying to make that connection between the two and so i'm just wondering you know was it a sort of a help or a hindrance where you suddenly had great uh, quantitative measurement i.e numbers of views of a video listening to a, a track that you're or people hitting a website to we've handed out some magazines no idea who's who's seen them yep. no idea if they're in a bin somewhere but yep. we've handed them out because you know from an advertiser's point of view they were probably adjusting as well they were thinking right, absolutely what do all these numbers mean and this is why i guess that, um I, I i i'm kind of reminded of of uh of a comment that mike the editor used to make quite regularly which was when he first began became the editor of NME, one of the challenges was that you had a part of your audience who were spending, I think, pound 80 on the magazine a week at that point. And then you have another huge segment of your audience who are engaging with you digitally. Now, you need to retain the content that the magazine was publishing behind its paywall, effectively, and not put that on your website. So if we had a really great um, cover story that week, um, which might have been a really big artist profile or something, somebody that was, you know, a really big artist that we were really great to have in the magazine and people had paid for that, we wouldn't put that content on the website because we didn't want to upset the segment of the audience who'd paid for it. Mm -hmm. When we made the decision to go free, it was it, it was quite it was quite freeing for him and his team because it meant that then actually it was about the best work yeah, on any platform and delivered yeah. in whichever way it would work. And of course there's an irony around this idea of digital being fast and quick. Yeah, exactly. And get, getting used to people quickly. But no, 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 we're not going to do that. Well, I say a really subtle change as well would have been, you know, the magazine used to be reflective. So you would buy the magazine and read a review of a live gig that you may have been to the previous week. What we wanted to try and do once it had gone free was recognise that if you go to a gig at Brixton Academy, you read the review of that on the bus on the way home or on the tube because you can get that immediacy with digital. That was great. So there was no point creating and publishing a magazine that was going to write and, and sort of distribute content to its audience that they'd already read online. So the focus of the magazine became much more forward-looking. It was about what can you do in the next 10 days? What are the events you should be looking at? So it became much more... Um, forward-looking in, in, in sort of a, in a time sense um, and it allowed the editorial team to then think about being fully creative with all the tools at their disposal and using the platforms whether that was um, audio whether it was the magazine whether it was a live event whether it was the website or social media to use those channels to distribute that content to its audience in a way that they wanted or was appropriate for the way that their life worked at that time so that was a big change. When, and so you, your point about the numbers, if I then talk about the commercial side of that, you know, we operated in a world whereby the first challenge was there was a, a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a P&L for that business. There then becomes a baseline cost 
that it's that, that you invest to create that product to create that brand on a week by week or an annual basis and the name of the game is can you create profit above that number um, in doing that what we then had to consider was how do we how do we go and compete with the kind of people who had been taking that kind of revenue from commercial partners and how do we make it relevant for commercial partners to want to use enemy um, as an advertising vehicle for that audience um, as I said, the Enemy Awards is an example that, you know, the revenue potential of that was, you know, was game changing. And that was because we could go to a client like, um, in the last example, Unilever and VO5, um, and they could sponsor the awards knowing that as well as coverage in the magazine, videos online, the live event on the night, the category sponsorship for which I can't remember their category, but say it was the you know, best album or something like that. There was a there was an all-in package which enabled them to put out marketing messages and, and use the enemy awards in such a way where we didn't have to dilute what we were doing. Actually, it gave us the opportunity to use all those channels to a far greater extent. But the the reality is numbers count in in uh, in modern media. Your you know. I don't know how many people will be, you know, there'll be some people that are obviously aware of this, but, you know, a brand will have a series of KPIs or objectives that they buy that campaign based upon, and you need to then try and achieve that. Um, and digital, you know, and the, and the scale and the numbers that come with the model we had help you do that. Um, but there is a real challenge in balancing the identity and the authenticity of NME with the needs of the client. You know, we were very aware that we would have to go and do some work that, quite frankly, um, we would have to challenge those clients on what they wanted to do. So we would never entertain a conversation with a sponsor whereby they wanted a specific artist to be part of that campaign because we knew that that's not a conversation you can have very often in the music industry. And, and equally, those artists are all doing different commercial uh, partnerships themselves nowadays it's an it's an important part of their their income mix actually um so you know there, there is a really fine balance between what the brand wants to do and how you grow its audience with how you then monetize that to ensure its long-term success and i guess depending on who you ask um you could argue both ways that that was working really well um or indeed it didn't work well enough because obviously the make or the brand enemy now if you look at it today um is in a is in a very different position to the to the brand that i certainly left in 2018. yeah sure i, I guess probably for a lot of people that were executives in the music industry that were either the, you know the, the publishers or the record companies or managers they had grown up with the enemy so yeah. they, they were probably sort of you know pulling along this admiration for the brand yeah i mean listen i remember some meetings i won't you know name any particular names oh, go on um, come on well there was I mean, you know you know we no took one listens out. this podcast anyway you can say whatever you want. <laughs> well okay um the process was that you know when we if i go back to that period where we were researching the projects and we were looking at all the different options and testing out you know all these different things that we were looking to do you know front cover strategies and and how the whole brand was going to evolve the first step was to take that then out under nda to a series of partners that we felt were crucial to the long-term success of that business model and actually those partners were all within the music industry so i i you know i held meetings with all of the major um concert and festival promoters took a team up took mike the editor we would present our vision for nme moving forward um and you know, inevitably they would sit there and they would critique that based on both their business interests, but to some extent personality and, and their own their own taste and their own experience of growing up with Enemy was a factor because there were people who would sit there and judge it as a fan rather than as um, a promoter or as a label exec or as a manager. And, you know, I used to love those meetings because the confrontational nature of it meant that we knew what was at stake. We knew that we were going to have to try and take people on a journey. The real regret, I guess, in hindsight, is that the early support that we thought we would have, and this is a frustration of mine, if I'm honest, with the music industry at large, is that we ended up making a lot more money and, and gaining a lot more investment from what you would call consumer brands than we did from brands within the music industry and that was tough because i could sit there every week and there would be a sales team who would be coming in and we would be hammering them because they weren't getting ads that we would see pop up in something like timeout for big festivals and for tours and we kind of went into this model believing that those ads would all appear in enemy and in the end they didn't and certainly not in enough volume to have made a financial difference so 
I think it was tough to accept because we felt as though, you know, there was this shared belief or certainly shared um, opinion at the time that these these businesses would help us um, because we knew that the enemy was important to them and there's this mutually beneficial relationship. And, the, the, you know, it's a real shame now because even in this last year, you know, the, if you look around and, and, and kind of consider what, it doesn't have to be a magazine, but, you know, what brands or what media brands now do that job for music? I think it's tough because it's, it's an ever declining list of people. You know, Q has gone, Karanga having trouble, Enemy now exists in, in digital form only. Um, there are some brands that I think are still successfully, you know, chipping away at an audience. And, and you know, I think it's it's great that they do. And, and, you know, I hope all of them continue to fight that fight as long as they can because I think it's a real shame the day that... People will struggle to, or, you know, you can't just get your music news from two or three exclusive suppliers. And I think that's kind of where we're headed, yeah. um, which is a great shame because it just means you don't get that, you know, that variation of opinion. You, you want people to disagree on, on music. And I think that's that's why we were always at our best when um, we were dividing opinion, whether that was across our readers, whether that was across our commercial clients, or whether it was, uh, you know, the, the music industry at large, let's say. Yeah. Um, and, and so... Uh, when you look back on that period of your life, is it with, I mean, such a big part of your life, right? Yeah, it was huge. Listen, I grew up, I loved the enemy. I was never, you know, I ended up very much on the business side of the job, of the brand, um, which is exactly where I should have been because I didn't have the encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, my kind of editorial or journalist or journalist colleagues. Um, so wait, you you brought them in for the pop, the pop, uh, public. You know, I was just kind of the plus one guy on yeah, the list, right? right. That's, but that's exactly where I wanted to be. I wanted to experience it. Um, I had my opinions. I listened to music. I didn't grow up playing instruments or anything like that, so I wasn't in bands. I hadn't. I guess I didn't have that that kind of fuzzy glow of the enemy. I was able to look at it as a business challenge, whilst fully appreciating the hugely important role that it that it had and still has in defining um, to young audiences or influencing young audiences about music. So that was very much, um, you know, my, you know, my challenge. I loved that job. If you'd have told me when I was at, I go back to when, you, you know, as you said before, when I was at college, I would have ripped your arm off to have had many of the experiences that I was fortunate enough to enjoy. And whether that was going to different concerts, festivals, gigs, or working with the people that I worked with, it was brilliant. Um, I do have some regrets about it in hindsight. And I think if I'm honest, I really would love to, if there was a sort of sliding doors opportunity to see what would have happened with another year or two. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality was that, the, you know, the the company that owned Enemy changed ownership uh, once. Um, the, the structures of that business were changing rapidly because the rest, of, you know, the 95% of the rest of that business was very much heaped in, in print publishing. And it meant that this kind of Enemy thing was out on its own to some extent in trying to evolve its model it was the only brand that had an audience that you could say was, you know, at the younger end. So we were having to disrupt ourselves. So, yeah, there are some regrets. I think there's things we do differently, but it's definitely the most enjoyable period of my career without doubt because I made some lifelong friends. I got to see some amazing things and, you know, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to change that. Yeah, well, that's good. Okay, well, so let's, let's uh, move on to where you are today because obviously coming out of... <clears throat> the sort of uh, comfortable confines of one particular company for such a long period of time and yeah. then moving into a world of I'll just kind of try some stuff yeah um, I mean and again I you know my listeners have heard me talk about this before I went through something very very similar didn't do 20 years at a company but yeah. something very similar and I mean for me it was a bit of a life choice as much as anything else and I thoroughly enjoyed it how have you found it I have found it, um, God, what a question. <laughs> um, I have found it, I found it really difficult. I, I, I was thinking about this on the way in this morning. I, I kind of committed to myself that I wanted to be quite honest about this period because obviously we meet and, and we, we publish or we record this at a time where, you know, there is significant disruption um, because of the kind of COVID situation with a number of the ways that, that all of us are working. So it doesn't really matter what industry or sector you're in. Everyone has gone through a, a kind of a crazy six months. And that has meant that my own journey has been has been quite difficult because I guess when I left the enemy, the first sort of three to six months, I didn't really do very much. I took the time off. I've got a young family. 
I'd been working, as you said, for the, the same kind of employer for almost 20 years, albeit in very different roles and had lots of different experiences. But, you know, one one way of working, let's say, or one company to work for. After that time that I'd taken off, I began to go back to a lot of the, you know, kind of friends and clients that I'd worked with to explore what the opportunities were. I'd, I'd always wanted to see if I could do something for myself. I didn't really know what that was. And that's been... That's been quite a refreshing part of the experience. But I went into this year, having spent most of last year, kind of building what I felt was um, the right environment and the right business existence for me. Um, I've worked with a bunch of different people, which was great because having spent 20 years somewhere, you become a bit conditioned and a bit, you know, even though you like to think you're you're experimenting and you're innovating, you're doing all these different things, the reality is when you work with the same people day in, day out for, for that amount of time, even though the environment changes a lot around you, you're, you're you know, you, you, you become very good at working, at, uh, you know, with those people. So I've now gone into a almost shifted completely in the opposite opposite direction. I now probably work with, I don't know, 50 different people um, across maybe seven to 10 different clients who are all at very different stages of their own business models, who all have very different challenges. And I really love that because I think that variation allows me to feel like I'm learning again, which has been quite cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that, but was a, you, that was a big thing for me. Yeah, it was you, huge. Because you get stuck, right? Yeah, yeah you know, Especially when you hit the senior positions. Yeah. You have people that do all the stuff for you, and so they're at the cutting edge of whatever's, you know, evolving Absolutely. or innovating around. And, you know, when you're... I mean, I was the MD of Ingrooves International, and you just... I had people that did all, yeah. all I mean, the stuff listen, I, I used to do. I used to feel like I was the kind of person who threw himself into all these different challenges and, um, and you know, would get his hands dirty on different things that we were doing work-wise. But the reality was there was an editorial team, there was a sales team, there was there was marketing resource, there was event specialists, um, and that was just on NME. And then when you look at timing more widely, there's a finance team, there's legal teams, there's all of these kind of central teams that are baked in around you. Um, and, you know, even though you like to learn, you know, you think that you know a bit about each of those things, you know, when you work on your own, as I'm doing now, you have to you have to learn. If you if you if you never did that before because you didn't like it or because you didn't have to. Um, you're forced into a position where you have to do that now. So that's that's enjoyable sometimes, but it's also frustrating because I think it, it dilutes the effectiveness that you can have within the core thing that you're trying to do. So for me right now, um, I still haven't quite nailed my sort of two-sentence uh, bio because it's different <laughs> everywhere, but effectively I'm working as a consultant for um, a, a range of clients. Let's name them. There's uh, some, there's some yeah, so there's some good ones. There. So there's, yeah. uh, there's the FAC, the Featured Artists Coalition, um, which are obviously a, a trade organisation working with artists and creators. Do some fantastic work. Yeah, do some fantastic work. And, and just this week they've announced uh, a whole series of new ambassadors that they're yeah. working with. Um, there's a really great guy, David, who's the GM there, and he, he I think he's been in his role probably for almost a year now. Yeah. Um, but he's he's kind of re-engineered and repositioned that business, and, and that was exciting for me. I became involved in that as a result of having worked with the MMF, which is the kind of management equivalent of what the FAC do. The, uh, they jointly host the Artist and Manager Awards every year. So I was involved in that last year, um, mainly on the commercial side, so helping them with their partnerships, um, bringing brands in who were, you know, both from within and outside the music industry to sponsor award categories and to kind of use that event as a, as a platform to promote themselves to that audience. Um, so they're two different trade bodies, which is great. I'm doing work for Croydon Council, um, who have successfully um, been accredited or were, were awarded the London Borough of Culture uh, for 2023. Um, I began working with them on a project to submit that proposal um, right. and it was about a piece of work called Social Prescription which is around using music and a number of other things as a way of tackling um, kind of lower level mental health conditions for people, you know, using the arts and, and you know, I guess more interesting subjects to engage people within communities and do things that's that's generally better for their kind of mental and physical health than just, you know, prescribed medicine, as an example. Um, so I'm working with Croydon Council on a project called Croydon Music City, which is a complete review and uh, restructuring of their music um, infrastructure across the borough. So that covers education, it covers talent development, venues, festivals and events. And I'm about to launch that hopefully just before the end of this year. 
been delayed slightly obviously this year um i do some work with a brand called open lab which is a, a kind of digital fm radio station so in Ibiza. this is another one of these ones yeah it's another Q, like, oh, exactly yeah. another person that we both had in common uh, yeah. which is q the managing director yeah. um that's great at the moment i'm working on a project with them where we've actually last week filmed uh, an event in ibiza with a french dj called guts and a bunch of kind of collaborators so probably by the time this comes out i think we will be on sale with that so as a lot of people are experiencing now digital and streamed events are the alternative and and um arguably the kind of long-term complement to live events when they return in in some form um so that's been great that's another you know a great example we're working with one client i, I do some work on a advisory basis i guess with open lab but you know that's turned into a completely different business model this year and that's been fascinating yeah. to play a part in and again learn a lot but as with all these things you you know you begin speaking to a lot of different people whether it's the artist side whether it's agents whether it's with ticketing platforms whether it's with production companies um so yeah doing some work with them um and and then there's a lot of other people i guess that you know i'm i'm working with on work, a, work with a festival americana yeah americana music association so americana fest which takes place again so this year it will have taken place back in january across hackney four-day event um, it combines a conference with showcases and an awards night so this year we had 70 bands playing at six venues across two nights in hackney it's kind of like a mini south by southwest or a sort of great escape again i was introduced to them because i've done the work with the mmf so what i found is that i'm, I'm kind of using my network and you know hopefully the successful results i've brought to other companies to then be onwardly recommended and work with different people so that's been great it's it's a a bit lonely because you have to sort of spend a lot of time chipping away on your own i don't know if you find that with your yeah, experiences of it i absolutely. went from working all these big teams to kind of being a lone wolf and that's a little bit that's hard at times because you have to really you know you have to be able to motivate yourself well and lockdown has not helped no because no, definitely you, know, you and i i think have cut from a similar cloth in terms of you know getting out there and socially meeting people physically yeah you know in real life and it, and it is very zoom's great but you yeah. know it's um, not the same, I, is it? I think i've probably I think this is probably the third or fourth time that I've been into London since March and we're sat here in kind of mid-September. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I grew up in, in South East London. I've lived here all my life, um, even though, as, as my name will suggest, for those who don't know me particularly well. I was going to um, say, because that's Italian. Well, also your, your accent is, it's not Italian. Yeah, I'm not going to enjoy it? listening yeah. to this back simply <laughs> because I, I do hate my uh, my voice when I hear it, as, as some people often say. But, we can just blame um, it you know, I'm, I'm proudly, uh, proudly from South East London and have... Um, have have certainly uh, never tried to hide that. I guess I think that's that's certainly something that's more open-minded about the way in which we operate today. I think you know there's that kind of idea of performing a role or playing a part to be the expected sort of person. I think you know that used to be quite a big deal when I was younger. I remember putting things on my CV that I'd never done because I thought it would be an impressive hobby. Um, well, like I, riding I think, a horse? And no, like I this. mean, I never went that far. No, I think <laughs> I think stamp collecting was one that I did have <laughs> on my CV. Um, and I remember turning up to an interview at a secondary school or something and one of the, whoever it was, the teacher had asked me about it. You know, so, you know, how many stamps are in your collection? And it's oh. just, um, it, it allowed me to fine tune the, 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 the skills you of being able out. to kind of blag wow. your way through a situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but as I said, yeah, no, nowadays I think it's, um, I think, you know, there's a much greater sense of, uh, you know, putting an honest or an authentic version of yourself uh, in front of people, which I think is a great thing because it's allowed people to to think in and work in much more open and honest ways. But yeah, for me, um, it's been really hard to go through this period because I was used to coming into London even in the last couple of years, maybe not as often as I did before, but my whole day revolves in one way or another around that around that journey. Um, all of the music that I listen to and, and have discovered um, has invariably been whilst travelling to meetings or once I'm coming in or going home at the end of the day, listening to podcasts or listening to audio books and, and those sorts of things. You know, I found I'm really behind. Like this morning I was coming in listening to some music thinking, Jesus, it's 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 been a long time since I've actually, you know, had that experience of just zoning out on the train mm -hmm. while I'm coming in and just sort of getting lost in something, which is, was quite a pleasant experience. Well, it's almost hard to justify that time when you could be sitting there doing emails yes exactly right? you know you could be making that extra phone call to do that extra thing instead yeah. of you know could, but of course when you're on the train i mean i don't know about you but i hate people yeah. to talk on the phone on the train it yeah, drives no, me can't. insane uh, the best so. thing about traveling at the moment is you know there are less people on those trains that's um, true. and that's uh true. and you know you you know maybe it is a slightly more 
uh, indulgent experience. You can kind of sit there and zone out without worrying about sort of, you know, bumping into people and moving down the carriages yeah. as would have been normal. But, but yeah, so this last six months has been difficult because, you know, to, to be completely honest, and, and I think it's, as I said before, it's one of the things that I, I wanted to try and consider how I would communicate that through your podcast today is that um, it's a big challenge because when you are working in this way, um, not that anybody would have foreseen this, but I, I started this year with a really clear plan in mind with a decent set of clients that I knew I was going into sort of second year relationships with. So I'd retained contracts to be doing work for people. I'd kind of, you know, as I tend to do, I'd, I'd probably forecasted in my head what this year would mean for me financially. Um, and none of that has really come to fruition because obviously a lot of the events and the things that I was working on and consulting on are just not happening. Are just not happening. And yeah. this is no, you know, this is by no means an individual issue. Um, as we saw yesterday with the announcements on the kind of second round of financial support for businesses, live music is in a really tough place. And I've yeah. got lots of friends and colleagues and, and clients who are struggling to find the solutions because I think that the dilemma is there are some short-term options available to people um, they're not financially attractive and nobody really knows for how long they need to be in place. Yeah. So the investment, and the, the, and that's both a financial and an intellectual investment, in creating new propositions for live music or for the way in which artists engage with fan bases, um, all feel like they're... It still feels a bit like they're... You know, we're going to do this for now until things return to normal. So I think there's this real stick or twist moment for people. Um, and all the time that this is happening, the venues are obviously all sat there waiting for appropriate support. And there are lots of voices and the FAC and the MMF have been two of those, but alongside people like Help Musicians and Music Venue Trust and all these people are doing yeah, yeah, amazing right. job at the moment of trying to keep that awareness high. Yeah. But yesterday's announcements, I think, were disappointing because I think that the... The chance was there to really galvanise not just the music industry, but probably the kind of entertainment industry, let's say, or the, the kind of creative industries around a message. The one, I think people in the music industry have all become much better at trying to help each other this year, which has been a positive because traditionally I think there's a lot of competing agendas across different you know facets of what people do in the music industry. I think it would be really interesting to see what could happen if you could harness that power now. And I think yesterday was an opportunity to do that, which maybe has been missed slightly. Who knows? Maybe that will change in the future. But um, but yeah, that makes existence as a as a freelance consultant dif difficult at the moment. Yeah, sure. So you, you you mentioned at the beginning of the year you felt like you had it kind of clear in your head as to how yeah. it's all going to go. So because I had a question about so what's next, and uh, so now I'm I'm feeling like maybe I shouldn't ask that question. But, no, 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 no. But you Listen, must be thinking about. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean. It's, it's hard. You have to. I find myself evaluating things from two different perspectives. One, which I can answer very quickly, is intellectually and, I guess, um, creatively, I love the work I'm doing. So, actually, I spend a lot of time talking to... Americana Fest is a good example at the moment. You know, we've been bouncing backwards and forwards ideas for the last three months on what shape next year's Americana Fest might take. Is that going to be a digital event? Um if so, which bits of the, the, the kind of existing um, festival would remain and, and where we, where might they innovate? And that's great because I love sitting there talking about ideas and just kind of riffing ways that things will work and how you can evolve and, and you know how you can meet a different audience need and what's the opportunity or the potential to do things bigger and better than you might have done before. The flip side to that coin is that you you know you need to create an income um, that is sort of sufficient to enable you to do that and I think that's the challenge for me right now so in terms of what's next for me I'm working pretty hard at ensuring that I keep all of my relationships strong because I think that's obviously a huge part of what will uh, will help me or anybody else on the other side of this I think it's about continuing to put ideas out there um, I'm working with a guy that was on your podcast recently Kojo at the moment who is about to take over a retail unit in Carnaby Street um, so if you're listening to this and you have ideas for that then uh, please get in touch with Kojo <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but yeah that's I mean you know that's that's for Black History Month and it's there to celebrate um, black owned businesses and to provide a platform for young entrepreneurs um, or entrepreneurs actually not necessarily all young but uh, entrepreneurs to showcase their products or services and, and things like that so that's a completely different you know thing for me 
Um, I love doing it because I really enjoy the opportunity to be going out and talking to people about something different, um, notwithstanding the fact that obviously there are challenges around how will that space work, what does social distancing mean, what are the precautions and safety measures you have to have in place to make that viable. And um, So yeah, so everything at the moment has that context of how do you operate within this, within this uh, kind of current environment where you need to adapt in order to be able to provide something valuable to to in that case obviously his his sort of pedestrian audience of people who would normally be kind of treading the the paving stones of Carnaby yeah. Street but might not be in quite quite such big numbers this time yeah um as they were last year um so yeah so it's it's interesting and, and next for me i think he's just doing more of that and trying to continue to be putting ideas and, and also carnaby street being the, the location that is very very central london for for people that yep. don't live in in the uk you know, there is no real residential kind of around it or not, no. not that much and so it's definitely a place you've got to travel to to go yeah to i mean but you know in, in a in another year that would have been probably 60 70 full with tourists because yep. it's one of those destinations it where is. people go it's got a lot of you know creative history in london and actually even only the other day uh, you know the Rolling Stones have got a pop-up store, which is just opposite where um, you know where my runway group are going to be having theirs, and yeah. it shows you that you know there are still opportunities there. But I would imagine um, it's much more the audience of people who might be back in offices or working around there, and it allows you to then work on okay, so what's the digital output for that? How can we still get a really good audience and use the tools or the platforms at your disposal to do that to bring people um, to similar experiences? So whether that's a listening party for an album launch or whether it's a an art exhibition how can you get the artist standing in front of a piece of work talking about the music that they were listening to when they they kind of created that piece and distribute that content digitally so that people can still learn from it they can still understand it they can still go on that journey but they don't necessarily have to be standing next to the artist as, as they would have done before yeah and so i mean this this episode is about executive growth and one of the sort of questions i i had in my head about uh, to sort of close on was you you'd spent so long in one company jumping around apartments and, yep. you know progressing up the, the the ladder and now you're in a, in a world where you're working with uh, you know as we mentioned before you know a friend of mine quentin who's got this fairly sort of entrepreneurial open lab concept that, yep. he, that he's building kojo of course great entrepreneur yeah do you find that are ideas coming to you and you're sort of thinking yeah i mean about, I'd, I'd like to think i've always I've always enjoyed that part of any project where you're kind of sitting there brainstorming or working out different ways of doing things and trying to approach things from different perspectives. I've been, you know, I've always tried to to empathise with audiences and what are the things that not only would serve their needs then, but actually create desires for to serve needs that they don't know they've got yet. That's ultimately what you're trying to do. But working with those type of people has definitely been quite freeing. And I guess, you know, the significant difference is that the reality is for anyone who's worked in a company like the what the one that I worked for, you know, there's there's at least 15% of your time that's spent on stuff that just doesn't matter. I mean, whether it's office politics, whether it's bureaucracy, whether it's different departments meetings that have to sign it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a cliche, but anyone that's that's grown up in that environment, and certainly, you know, as you said, with the, with the context of this podcast and executive growth and thinking about my own journey and, and where that might be applicable or, or, or hopefully help others, um, you know, working more recently with entrepreneurs and working with people who have got earlier stage business models but are fearless and take risks and are brave in putting things out there i mean we would have spent six months deliberating something that in the end we wouldn't have done when i was at time inc because there was just too much evidence to suggest it might not work and for why the guys that i'm working with now they just don't have that luxury they don't have the time to, to waste on that so they'll just do something and um I've spent a lot of time reassessing success, both for the, the kind of commercial clients, but also for the businesses, because I think I found it quite difficult at the beginning, because I would I would instantly try and compare what would have been successful in my old job versus what do I consider successful now for this client. And I think it's really important to do that um, from the start. I've certainly learned that and do it much more quickly now. Because you, you can disappoint yourself because you can actually measure things that you, you, you think actually for the person I'm doing on this on behalf of now, this has already been hugely successful. Kojo's a great example. I helped him out 
with uh, ASOS last year. There's a, a girl that I know that runs social media there who used to work for me. Um, she helped out on supplying them with some, you know, some kind of uh, exercise uh, apparel that they were going to use. They did this street dance thing, and it was amazing. And he was over the moon. And at the beginning, I was probably reluctant to make that introduction or to try and make that work because I just thought, oh, but what about this? And is it the right brand? And have they got any money? And is the money? And if they have got money, is it enough money? And you know, you just I've learned very quickly. Don't worry about any of that now. Yeah. Kind of create the opportunity, make it work, deliver it, and then um, you're you are growing. You are learning again. You're doing things differently, and not everyone has the same criteria for whether those things are successful or not. That's a really good lesson. Uh, thank you for for sharing that, and um, and thank you for doing this. Man, Pleasure. It's, I mean, it's, it's been uh, really it's, it's interesting. Been really good, to you know, hear. Listen, I've got out of the house. I've come into London. This Yay. is. Uh, <laughs> I've listened to some music. I've got my sunglasses on. I've taken a, a kind of walk around London. You feel it's been human good. again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I hope this is, uh, you know, not necessarily a, a full turning point, but it's certainly a point at which, uh, you know, it was good for me because it gave me a chance to have a think about, you know, some of those things that have, uh, you know, probably haven't had time to reconsider um, actually in the yeah. last couple of years. So it's been cool. I think a lot of people have been reflecting on on their lives in general. Yeah, exactly. I, I know I Too have. much time. Well, Mind you, I've got three yeah. kids. You don't get much time to reflect oh, upon goodness, much during the day. Yeah. So, you know, train journeys are good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More train journeys, please. Yes, yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. For Pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Uh, so to my listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, stay in touch with the show via my socials. I'm at Alex Branson on both Twitter and Instagram. And a shout out to the incredible audio assassins who have provided the music branding for the show. Link in the notes. Thank you.